Take your Bibles, please, if you would. Turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. We've been working through John 13, 14, and eventually 15, 16, and even into 17. Every first Sunday of the month as we come to the Lord's Supper, tying it together with our expositional study in the book of Galatians and the importance of getting the gospel right. We've made a concerted effort on that today and, and in this time frame in which we live because in so many ways the gospel comes under attack almost at each in every generation. And it's not that these battles have not been fought for the purity of the gospel in time past, but the church has neglected to understand those battles neglected to understand the context of that history, those giants who went before us and fought the good fight for the purity of the gospel and the evangelization of the world. And we're going to continue to bring all of those things together at the communion table, but I'd also remind you that the chapel ABF class, Sunday school class, is spending a significant amount of time, and we'll finish over the next two weeks looking at the history of the attacks on the gospel and the men who stood large in the midst of those attacks for the purity of the gospel. And those kinds of chapters in history are critically important because we're fighting the very same battles yet again today. And the purity of the gospel boils down to whether or not someone truly, truly has been rescued from their sin. Paul makes it clear in Galatians that there's only one gospel and not another gospel, and that is where we stand even today. There is one gospel rooted and grounded in Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone, to the glory of God alone. You have your personal testimony, but may your testimony be about what Christ has done, not what you did, because you did nothing, nothing nothing. So tell me your salvation isn't glorious, that God in eternity past reached down and rescued your soul. Christ is preparing these disciples for post-resurrection ministry of evangelism, to go into all of the world from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts. He's giving final instruction in this upper room discourse that we've been looking at for now over a year's time, and we'll continue to do so. But today, we'll turn our attention, beginning in verse 15 of John chapter 14, reminding you of all the ground we've already covered. Jesus says to those disciples gathered together, if you love me, keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper to be with you forever even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. I'm going to not leave you as orphans. I will come to you, and yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live, you also will live. And in that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And Judas, not Iscariot, this is Judas, 
son of James, Thaddeus, oftentimes in Scripture, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. The word that you hear is not mine, the Father's who sent me. It's important that you remember what Christ has presented beginning in chapter 14 and onward. One of those things that he presents is that Trinitarian involvement in salvation and and truth. We find it in the context Jesus says in chapter 14 that the words that he speaks are the very words of the Father. And he spoke those throughout his ministry to these same disciples, although not all were with him, that meaning Judas Iscariot. And as he's speaking this truth, the words of the Father verbally revealing himself to this world, to these disciples, and and eventually to the world, he promises them that they will remember all the words that he has spoken, all the words that were given him by the Father through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, who will bring back all of those things to their remembrance and in a glorious kind of way, will write them, uh, write them down, being superintended by the Holy Spirit, writing the inspired Word of God, this gospel of salvation to all who will believe. So as he introduces that Trinitarian revelation of the plan of God for the ages, He's instructing these disciples about how that plan works itself out. They're still not quite aware of what will soon transpire. They're expecting him to set up a kingdom. They're expecting him to take his rightful place to rule and to reign. But he has told them time and time again that he had come to seek and to save those who are lost. As all of this comes crashing down around them in that week of passion, the ultimate crucifixion and resurrection, they will learn some valuable lessons of perseverance when it comes to taking the Word that came from the Father through the Son by means of the Holy Spirit to them. They will be entrusted with that Word, and they must contend for the faith. And that is that great commission that we read about in Matthew. So in verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus is saying, you love me because I first loved you, and because I know you and you know me, you will keep my commands. And if I were to ask, well, what are those commands? He's already told them, the things that my Father gave me to say that the Spirit will remind you of in the days that lie ahead. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper, an assistant. We know this to be the Holy Spirit of God, to be with you forever. And this spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, really important. The unbeliever cannot comprehend the depth and the breadth of the love of God in Christ Jesus, nor grasp the intricate and and deep truths contained in the Word. And even as God's people, we need the assistance of the Holy Spirit to understand the things that He says and the things that it requires and the things that He teaches us. Jesus will remind them that they will not be left alone. He's got this all under control. 
but the world cannot receive it because it doesn't know Him, it doesn't see Him. But juxtaposed against that world, you do know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. This promise of, of the indwelling presence of the Spirit that, that, that comes a reality in the day of Pentecost. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I, I'm not going to abandon you. I will come again. Perhaps a, a veiled reference to His appearance after the glorious resurrection, but eschatologically, His eventual appearance as King of kings and Lord of lords. He's saying, don't get ahead of yourself. Now is not the time for the kingdom, but you will see me again in the kingdom. What a, what a glorious promise that is. As he goes forth and teaches them these things, there's a restlessness in the group because they don't understand all the things that he was trying to teach them, and they won't until after it all transpires. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, his death and burial, but, but you will see me because I live, you will also live. And in that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. That union that the believer has in God through Christ in the indwelling presence of the Spirit. We don't speak much of our union with Christ in, in, in some of our dispensational you know, circles, but, but that union of Christ is critically important. That binding together and joining us together with Christ is critically important if we're going to live out our, our lives for the sake of the gospel. And we address that and we'll continue to address that as we, as we move forward. He reminds them, whoever has my commandments and keeps them is he who loves me. There's a consistent theme here about love means obedience, and obedience means love, and, and back and forth, and, and back and forth. One of the great reductionist understandings of the gospel today is the exclusion of repentance, turning away from your sin and to Christ, away from your disobedience and, and, and to disobedience. When that is left out of the gospel, it is an empty gospel. For Christ came to change you from the inside out for His glory. He gives us His Spirit and His truth to do so. To reject that notion of repentance, confession, and turning away from your sin gives us an impression that, that you, can, you can know Christ and still live life on your terms. It doesn't work that way. If you know Him, you love Him, and if you love Him, you keep His commandments. It's all connected. That's not an option reflect upon some of that truth. It's critically important that these disciples began to understand that they would pen the clarity of this gospel account throughout the epistles, but he reminds them again about obedience. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and make myself or manifest myself to him. And Judah says, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? How are you going to be the king ruling over the kingdom if we're the only ones in on that. See, they didn't understand what was happening. How would the rest of them know about the kingdom? How would the rest of them enter into that kingdom? By these men in this room who would be faithful in proclaiming the gospel that rescues the souls of men. That's how the world will see me, through you and your obedience and your faithfulness to the truth. And Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, 
and he will come to him and make our home with him. But whoever does not love me does not keep my words. That's a really pointed statement by Jesus. You're in or you're out. You love me or you don't. You're obedient or you're not. He's not robbing the believer of their security. He is promising the believer their security in Christ alone, the indwelling presence of the Spirit, and the help to obey, because most of us are incapable in the flesh of being obedient to the Father, right? Otherwise, it's a work salvation. Just try a little bit harder. That is not the gospel. The gospel is rooted and grounded in Christ alone. Perhaps the reason that he says not the one who doesn't love me doesn't keep my words as there was one among them was an imposter, son of, son of perdition. Remember chapter 13 of John? Jesus goes around that table and washes the disciples' feet, even Judas' feet, the one who would betray him. Judas doesn't know him. And the world, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Briefly this morning, I want to talk about the implications of this passage and tie some things together in our study so far in Galatians, in our study in the chapel ABF, and in the importance of this obedient command call for lordship through the gospel. The Bible tells us and makes it very clear, and we see in, in verses 15 and 16 that Jesus promises that upon belief there will be this divine invasion. Upon belief, the Holy Spirit will, will take up His residence in the lives of these disciples. It would happen at Pentecost, but we know that it happens immediately when one believes today. God takes up His residence. Let a professor call it a divine invasion. I love that term. A divine invasion. God comes in and says, mine. He declares His ownership. And that ownership was secured through redemption because He bought you with the price. You see how all that works together? Mine. And this Holy Spirit comes into us, and He indwells us, and the Holy Spirit is critically important to this gospel that we preach. It is the Holy Spirit that regenerates. It is the Holy Spirit that takes the person Paul describes in Ephesians 2, dead in trespasses and sin, and it's the Holy Spirit that takes that dead man and breathes into him life. He regenerates them. He gives them life, and that life the light of man, it is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This Holy Spirit and divine invasion brings us to this place of, of indwelling and, and filling. Now, that's misunderstood in some circles today. Some of you think the filling means we get a little bit more of the Spirit or a little less of the Spirit. Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 1 that God lavishes His grace. He's not stingy. He laughed. Well, you get all the spirit that you need. The question is, have you yielded everything to the spirit that he demands? See, the filling of the spirit is us giving over our thinking and our affect, our feeling, our wills to the King of kings and Lord of lords, but that's grounded and rooted in the reality of the gospel. And sometimes when we get the gospel wrong, we fail to understand our responsibility 
and yielding our lives in obedience so that Christ can do something special. And then there's a sealing ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's a seal of redemption that's spoken of, again, in Ephesians. When you believe, you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. How do we know that we will get everything that God promised? Well, if you just work hard enough, no, that's a works-based salvation. You know how we know? Because the one who loves Him and the one whom the Father loves has been given the Spirit. And that Spirit is a stamp of ownership and protection where God says, mine and nothing shall separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, and no one will pluck you from my Father's hand. That's a glorious ministry of the Spirit of God. We are sealed with that Spirit and called to live obedient lives to the praise of His glory. So how do we live obedient lives? This is where we truncate the gospel. Grace is God's unmerited favor, giving us what we don't deserve. It is God alone calling us to salvation and forgiving us of our sins. And sometimes we make grace all about the salvation experience, but you cannot live an obedient life without the continuation of grace. In John chapter 15, in the vine and the branches, he says, without me, you can do nothing. Well, then what do you, how do I do this obedience thing? By grace. It comes through the Spirit of God and equips the people of God to do the work of God through obedience. You see how all of that goes? Every good work that we present to the Father, every good thing that we do is a blessing of grace. I'm always overwhelmed. The account of Scripture describing the Bema Seat where we stand in the presence of our Savior. And He gives us rewards for how we live this Christian life. And here's what bothers me. I'm a train wreck. I can't do any of that stuff. God, through His grace, does it and then chooses somehow to reward me. What is that all about? It's the continuation of grace. But finally, maybe it dawns on all of us. And if you read the text… We don't keep those crowns parading around heaven. We give them to the rightful owner, and that is Christ and us, our hope of glory through the ministry of the Spirit. We are bit players on a big stage. God always does what God does, and it's through the ministry of the Spirit, through the continuation of grace. The grace that you need for salvation is the same grace you need for sanctification. And without the grace of God, you don't have a chance. But aren't you thankful? that He gives us grace. He pours out grace, and what does Paul say? Lavishly. What a great term. Lavishly. I pour it out over your head. God is not a stingy God, and it's a good thing because we couldn't do this without a continuation of grace. We're also called to lordship. One of the chapters in history they're going to look at and coming days in our, in our ABF is this whole lordship salvation debate that, that took place about 20 years ago. I challenged you and I warned you that, that when in fact we, we change the gospel or try and make it a little bit more palatable for a world of unbelief, there are inevitable consequences to that gospel. Number one, it robs God of His glory. When we believe that we did something to secure our salvation, you rob God of His glory because only He could do that, and He did in Jesus Christ. But the second thing that happens is we truncate this gospel or, or, or change it to make it more acceptable to this world, 
is that we devalue the work of Christ on the cross. This same Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. That's a critical passage of Scripture. As Peter speaks and preaches the gospel on Pentecost, this same Jesus you crucified is both Christos, the promised Messiah, but he's, but he's Lord. And who do you think you are to look at the God who rescued you from your sin and made you alive by the Spirit and say, thank you, I'll do it my way from here on in. That's not the way this goes. There's an expected lordship commitment in the gospel when we realize that it is in Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone, for the glory of God alone. And that expected commitment is to yield to this King of kings and Lord of lords who gave his own life for your soul. And when we leave that out of the gospel, we leave people yet still in their sin to live life on their terms with no understanding of the glorious nature of their salvation. And your salvation story is glorious. I don't know why, but God reached down in eternity past and claimed you as his own. That is glorious, glorious, glorious. In this text, as Jesus presents all of this to these disciples, they will mull it over in their hearts and minds, and this Holy Spirit will bring it to their remembrance as, as they pen the pages of Scripture, and it will tell them and warn them of this danger of, of reductionism. You know, there are some people who ask today, what's the very least that someone can believe and still be saved? I hear R.C. in the background. What's wrong with you people? What do you mean, what's the least? There is no least. He is King of kings, Lord of lords, Savior of the world, and without Him, there is no hope. There's no least to the gospel. The gospel is the gospel, and it can't be reduced to any lesser part. That's what Paul's fighting for in Galatians. Don't change the gospel. The whole thing matters. As we reflect upon that, lordship and repentance sometimes are those things that are jettisoned in salvation. But if God could only rescue us from past sin and not future sin, what, what hope is there? What hope is there? Be very careful in this notion of the gospel, and as, and as Christ speaks and teaches them, He's addressing these critical, critical matters and tying the lordship and obedience to love. And it's not if the Father loved us, it's since He loved us. It's not if the Son loved us, but since He loved us. It's not if we have the Spirit, but since we have the Spirit. And because of all of that, you are called to obedience to yield to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's a hard gospel. I don't always like it either. For my 40 years of ministry, some of the same people who cheer on my simple, straightforward approach to the Scripture. Don't always like that simple approach to Scripture. So for those, listen carefully. Your life is not your own. 
How dare you? Your life is not your own. You have been bought with a price and called to yield to the lordship of the King of kings and Lord of lords. That is not optional. It is not optional. For who he saves, he sanctifies. He changes them. It doesn't happen overnight, but it always produces fruit. Remember we just last week talked about the parable of the sower. For those who are genuinely born from above, they yield fruit. Some 30, some 60, some 100. The evidence of lordship is fruit. It changes us. And the only explanation for that change is rooted and grounded in Christ alone. And through this ministry of sanctification and the proclamation of the truth, God uses that truth to shape us and conform us to the image of His Son, which brings us full circle in John chapter 14. The importance of true truth. Pilate, the mockery of a trial before the crucifixion of Jesus makes what the world considers a very profound statement. What is truth? And Jesus tells his disciples there is one truth, that it comes from the Father, through the Son, by means of the Spirit, and it is that truth alone that sets you free, and you shall be free indeed. He calls them to the gospel. One, one, one truth, no distractions. There's a simplicity to the gospel. There's a depth to the gospel that we don't often mine, and it cheapens the gospel that we preach sometimes. We must guard our hearts against that. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word, and the Word comes from the Father through the Son by means of the Spirit to the glory of God alone, and then is entrusted to those that He loves as they are called by Jude to contend for the faith delivered once and for all to the church. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's that gospel that we celebrate. It's that gospel that we challenge. It is that gospel that this generation today is called to fight and contend for, for all of the attacks of the history past seem to cycle around in history, and God raises up men with the boldness to tell the truth no matter what. It's exactly what He's rallying these disciples for, but it's going to be a crazy week for them. And everything that they thought was true was challenged until this resurrected Christ saw them again. And he said, now do you understand? And through the ministry of the Spirit, they would understand more and more and more. And these mere mortals went out and changed the world, not because they were good men, but because of the power of the gospel. And that is what we celebrate. But how about the power of the gospel in your life? Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you're anything like me, still working on that. <laughs> I would like to think I'm doing better at it than I used to, but I'm not home yet. 
things I want to do, I don't do, and the things that I don't want to do, I do. Maybe it's just me. You don't have that problem. So we're called to this table to remember that you're bought with a price. You're filled by the Spirit. You're called to a life of holiness, and you are charged to contend for the gospel, for the glory of God alone. So when we come, we examine ourselves. You've heard me say this a lot. I'll say again. Some of us are experts at looking in the mirror and seeing everyone else's flaws. <laughs> Just expert at it. When you look in the mirror, you realize you're not home yet. You realize the only path home is through the truth of the Word that sanctifies me and makes me conform to the image of Christ. And when I'm disobedient to that word, this same Jesus is our advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So let a man examine himself before he eat of this bread and drink of this cup, remembering the Lord's death until he come. We're trying to weave all of this together, not just bits and pieces, but the big picture of the glorious gospel the gospel of our salvation is a glorious story in Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone, and only to the glory of our King. And that's why we come to remember. Father, it's a glorious gospel that has rescued our souls, granted us a peace that passes understanding, is grounded in hope, a confident expectation that a better day is coming, will soon be revealed as we see you. It is that gospel that you've entrusted to us. May we get the gospel right. May we get this glorious gospel in Christ alone right. May we proclaim it to a world without and incapable of knowing you. May we rest in your goodness knowing that whoever the Father draws will be rescued in Christ alone, sealed with a spirit of promise, entrusted with the gospel of hope waiting for the ultimate fulfillment. When life is hard, we long for that. But until such time, mine is faithful. May it all resound to your glory, for it is a glorious gospel indeed. Bless now as we take this benevolence offering. May we use it in a tangible way to encourage those in need. And in all ways, may you receive the praise and the honor and glory we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.